On this episode, Alden Abbott, a senior research fellow here at the Mercatus Center, talks to Douglas Melamed and Joshua Wright about their different perspectives on pressing discussions around antitrust policy. If you would like to connect with a scholar featured on this episode, please email the Mercatus Outreach team at mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Welcome. I'm Alden Abbott, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and former General Counsel of the Federal Trade Commission. My views on breaking antitrust developments are found in my free monthly newsletter online, The Competition Corner. Just enter Competition Corner and Alden Abbott, that's A-L-D-E-N-A-B-B-O-T-T, in your search engine to find and subscribe to The Competition Corner. Okay, today I'm honored to host a conversation on antitrust policy between two of the nation's leading antitrust scholars, Douglas Melamed, professor of the practice of law at Stanford University Law School, and former acting assistant attorney general for antitrust under President Clinton, and Joshua Wright, university professor of law at George Mason University's Scalia Law School and former federal trade commissioner during the Obama administration. As moderator, I will proceed by asking a series of questions. Each question will be directed to one of our two scholars, and the second scholar will be invited to respond. My goal is to highlight differences and similarities in perspectives on antitrust policy through a friendly dialogue between two of the most experienced practitioners and best thinkers in the field who are known to hold somewhat contrasting views. Our eminent speakers have agreed to let me address them by their first names. Let's begin. Doug, the first question is for you. There's been a lot of talk in recent years about neo-Brandeisian antitrust, which features a big is bad philosophy and de-emphasizes consumer welfare as a guiding star of antitrust enforcement. You have emphasized that you support the consumer welfare standard which U.S. courts have accepted for 40 years. Nevertheless, you and UC Berkeley economics professor emeritus Richard Gilbert recently wrote, quote, where we agree with the new Brandeisians is that antitrust enforcement has been too weak, largely because many courts appear to have accepted the idea that the costs of too aggressive enforcement are greater than the costs of too weak enforcement. Encouraging courts to include innovation concerns in their reviews of unilateral conduct and mergers in high-tech industries could alter this calculus in favor of more aggressive antitrust enforcement. In this respect, it is a movement toward the new Brandeisians, although not a bridge that connects their movement to the views of those who support more traditional economically focused antitrust enforcement. Now that's a mouthful, but in short, could you elaborate on your statement that antitrust enforcement has been too weak? And can you briefly explain how innovation can better be taken into account in judicial antitrust reviews? Sure. Uh, let me add a third question, if I can, to that briefly, Alden. And that is the the issue about the consumer welfare standard with the new Brandeisians. The fundamental issue, the core issue, is whether antitrust law is going to be remain uh, singularly focused on economic welfare, which is what I think the end of the day the consumer welfare standard means, 
or whether they will be incorporated into that in addition to or in lieu of consumer welfare or economic welfare, you know, other objectives, inequality, uh, and so forth. Um, and I strongly believe that we should, antitrust for a number of reasons we can get to later, should should uh, stay in flame uh, and focus on economic welfare. The notion that antitrust law, in my view, needs to become a little more aggressive, uh, it, it means uh, that I think it's been um, uh, too deferential to defendants, too laissez-faire oriented uh, with respect to its objective of maximizing economic welfare. I think that's been true. Uh, I think the data suggests that there's been uh, some increases in concentration, price cost margins and the like. They're not unambiguous, I, I concede. But more than that, I look at it uh, at a micro level and I look at, at what, you know, what might be called micro rules, the rules about predatory pricing, the rules about refusals to deal, some of the recent decisions, the American Express decision, I think they're wrong. And I think many of them, not all of them, but some of them are wrong. And I think, I think those that are wrong tend to be wrong because of a, a notion that's been repeated over and over and taken to excess that we should uh, try harder to avoid false positives, false convictions, as it were, uh, than to avoid false negatives. I think it's going too far. Now, the rule of innovation is really a little orthogonal to that, although I think what we were trying to say is if antitrust gets a, a incrementally more aggressive, which is all we're proposing, uh, it might take a little of the political steam out of the of the new Brandeisians because some of the concerns they have would be you know, marginally ameliorated. The innovation idea is this. It's, we all have known for a long while that innovation is much more important uh, to economic welfare than avoiding dead weight loss. Uh, and innovation is often recited in antitrust documents, but it's, it's almost always a make way, rarely ever specifically analyzed. Um, and our thesis, Rich Gilbert and mine, in the article to which you refer, um, is that if innovation effects were assessed directly, uh, they could, in appropriate cases, warrant uh, sometimes both interventions and sometimes justifications and defenses uh, that are not recognized by a more traditional antitrust focus simply on price or quality adjusted prices. And the reason for that difference is that uh, most antitrust comes down to two issues. Was there any competitive conduct? Did it create market power? Market power by definition is the ability profitably to increase prices. If you increase market power, you have an, a, an ability and an incentive to increase price. So price harms uh, can be presumed from a mere increase in, in market power in a product market. Innovation is a more complicated story. You have to look at two different uh, really markets. You might call it the, the, the market for innovation resources and the product market uh, and some more complicated analysis. So if innovation affects whether uh, as justifications or as a basis for liability are going to count, they're going to have to count by a, a, a somewhat different and more complicated analysis than that which we traditionally use for price effects. So innovation, and I think that's probably a lot of people, philosophies in antitrust perhaps agree innovation is terribly important. Josh, you have any comments on what Doug has said? Always, but but sure. Uh, and it's it's a pleasure to be here and Nobody I enjoy discussing these issues more uh, than than Doug. I think we're very thoughtful about the areas we disagree with, but we're going to start on something we agree with, and we'll we'll find some fun things to disagree about too. So I, I think I will comment in the same order as, as Doug addressed the, the the question to sort of leave the specifics for innovation toward the end. 
I, I absolutely agree that the big when we talk about the neo Brandeisian influence on on antitrust, if, if if there will be any on the ground, is about a movement to a standard that asks antitrust to have multiple multiple goals, mo- multiple uh, objectives, rather than a singular focus on economic welfare. I think the sixty four thousand dollar question about whether the neo Brandeisians impact the antitrust world at the end of the day will be: Are we left with a standard that has a singular economic welfare focus, or or not? Um, and I think we where we start on a, an agreement is: Doug and I both agree uh, that antitrust is best served by a singular focus upon economic welfare. Uh, so, no disagreement there on the question about whether the evidence and I suspect we'll find lots of ways to, to talk about this disagreement throughout the our conversation. But on the question about the quality of evidence that antitrust enforcement has been too lax, I, I think we land in a very different place. Um, I, for one, uh, would like to see the agencies bring all of the good cases that they can bring. Um, by good case, I mean cases, and I think Doug and I agree on what a good case is, a case where there is conduct that uh, a, where the defendant acquires market power by agreement, by conduct, by merger, right? Um, and you know, to the detriment of of competition and, and consumers, I think the quality of evidence that suggests systematic laxity on the part of the antitrust enforcement regime in the U.S. is not very persuasive. Doug's got a list of cases he doesn't like. He, he doesn't like the decision in Amux. He doesn't like the decision in, and I think I've, I've read or we've talked about Qualcomm before. I've got a list of cases where the plaintiff won that I, where I thought there were bad cases and bad decisions too. We can do our list all day and maybe we'll, we'll do some of that here. Um, but in terms of the quality of evidence of systematic under enforcement, most people point to industry level sector data suggesting sector level concentration is going up. Anybody who follows antitrust knows that's neither here nor there for the question of whether there's been increasing or decreasing competition. Um, further than that, most of the m- more recent evidence suggests a sort of really interesting economic phenomenon that is sector level concentration up, local concentration down, increase in output, and that margin increase, this is sort of everybody's second favorite thing to point to for systematic evidence of a system of a failure in antitrust enforcement. Um, well, margins can go up for two reasons. The price goes up or marginal cost goes down, right? Or both. And, you know, unsurprisingly, I think the best evidence is sort of a mis- mixed bag on, on the, those questions. And Nathan Miller has a great paper that looks at 400 product markets and says, well, you know, when everybody points at those papers with the big increasing markups, about 70% of that comes from a reduction in marginal cost, mostly from lo- already large firms entering new markets or new geographies. That's an output expanding thing. Now, it has all sorts of interesting impacts on the economy. We get an increase in firm size. You get distributional effects. Maybe it has impacts on, on, on income inequality. But the premise of the argument that the agencies are, you know, asleep behind the wheel and should be more aggressive because look at all the market power that's accumulated in the uh, throughout the economy. Um, I sort of re- reject the premise of that question, and we can talk more about the, the 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 data. That doesn't mean that I don't fully agree 
uh, with Doug's proposition that we ought to find good cases to bring. And there are places where the agencies have shied away from, from good cases. Doug likes to innovation cases. I would like to see the agencies put all of that energy uh, into uh, being more creative in the way that we attack public restraints, you know, the, where I think everybody agrees are, are sort of pernicious and longstanding sources of, of monopoly power where there's not so much disagreement about the effects. I, I would like to see more of that. I would like to see more criminal enforcement uh, than, than we have now uh, and more creative thinking about, about sanctions. So long, long story short, I think plenty that we agree on at a, at a broad level, maybe disagree over the current state of affairs and how much of a crisis there is in markets themselves or in, in, in the courts or at, at the agencies, but plenty to, uh, plenty to improve on. And find a la- just a, a word about uh, innovation. I'm all for the idea that to the extent we can do better thinking, more clear thinking uh, and measurement with respect to directly assessing innovation symmetrically on, on sort of the plaintiff's prima facie burden and in terms of of defenses, I am all for it. I, I I agree that innovation and I'd probably add entry to the list are two places where antitrust analysis is the most hand wavy on on both sides of the analysis. Both when plaintiffs invoke uh, lack of you know barriers to entry or or uh, harm to innovation and 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 on the defense side, those are two places where I think the antitrust toolkit and rules could be improved greatly. Whether it means more enforcement or less, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But I think those are two places where um, I really wish more of the intellectual energy in our field was going into solving those problems and a little less into um, debates over whether we should bring back the antitrust regime of the 60s. Thanks, Josh. The next question is for you. In his 2021 executive order on competition, President Biden stated, quote, we're now 40 years into the experiment of letting giant corporations accumulate more and more power. And what have we gotten for it? Less growth, weaken investment, fewer small businesses, close quote. He then outlined plans for more aggressive antitrust enforcement, as well as government investigations into competitive problems in a host of industries, for example, railroads, uh, pharma, many more. What did the executive order get wrong? And what, if anything, did it get right? And then I will ask uh, Doug, of course, for his reaction. The executive order, like most executive orders that do things with competition, you know, says a lot but without, without much analysis or, or, or thinking. And there are things to like and things not to like in the executive order. It names, uh, you listed four, I think it names 70-something industries by name at a and says the agency should look or think hard about changing rules or or et cetera. I, what comes out of the executive order, I think, um, as an aspirational document, I'm, I'm not sure. And I trust is moved by by winning and losing real cases in real courts in front of real Article Three judges, at least on a on a good day. Um, that's the way antitrust uh, moves, and we'll see we'll see what happens. Uh, in the courts when these agencies bring cases or try to promulgate rules or when those other industry sector level regulators try to do the same. As an aspirational document, look, it uh, there was a lot of political pressure on the Biden administration to walk away with from some of the commitments the Obama administration made. Uh, and uh, Trump after that and, you know, uh, uh, administrations prior on occupational licensing and 
some of the state action type sort of public public restraints. I think the politics on that have changed. So for example, I think if you lined up sort of modern progressive antitrust thinkers with the neo-Brandeisians, the neo-Brandeisians reject um, most of the using antitrust to attack state and local uh, restraints of trade, sort of actively support antitrust immunity for state boards and the like. That part of their view has not gotten a lot of attention. I'm not sure exactly why, but the the politics on those sorts of issues have changed. And so I think I think it was a good thing. Um, and kudos to the Biden administration for sort of sticking to their guns on addressing occupational licensing and public restraints as a, as a real problem. I think it's a, you know, a real problem that affects a lot of Americans. And so that, that was a thing in that document. I like, you know, the, re- the rest of it, I don't know. It's hard for me to get excited about what an executive order says about you know, a preamble about loss of competition and the failed antitrust experiment. Most of that's wrong, but what it means at the end of the day is more or less nothing. The, the agencies have a mandate from the administration to go out and bring the cases they can find. So far, they've not done a ton. Um, they certainly haven't done more than the administration prior. Uh, now they haven't had a fifth commissioner, at least at one of those agencies. And so we'll, the jury's still out on what they, they actually do. But I'm not a, a big believer that um, you know the EO has a big impact other than telling those agencies symbolically that they should be aggressive. And I, I suspect they were going to do that anyway. Doug, your thoughts? Well, I don't I don't think I fundamentally disagree with Josh about that. I think uh, I, I think there's a little more on the upside to say for the order, just because it was so sweeping and so strongly worded. I don't recall a, an executive order of the breadth and kind of um, strength of that one uh, on, on competition in the bro- in a broad way like this. Um, I, I do like very much the, what, what I guess has been called the, the all of government approach, because it's, it's extremely important uh, that we focus on the ability of other governmental regulatory and executive agencies to ameliorate any competitive restraints and promote competition in their industries, and to focus also on the extent, as Josh was saying, uh, of the regulations at every level of government that, that, that restrict competition, and to, and to take a hard look at whether we can get rid of those in the name of competition. I think the executive order was good in, in terms of pressing in those directions. On antitrust enforcement itself, well, you know, it, it did say we have to we have to be more aggressive in all of this rhetoric you sometimes see throughout the economists, throughout all the Democrats from the Obama administration. I think it's nonsense. Um, uh, my point is that, at least my concern where I differ, I guess, from Josh, is that um, I think there are aspects of antitrust doctrine, uh, burdens of proof and these so-called micro rules and aspects of merger enforcement uh, that have been um, have been too cautious and have resulted in, in bad outcomes in those particular markets, cases and sectors. Uh, whether they show up in the aggregate data or not, I agree, is a, is a kind of a hard argument to, to make. Um, uh, so I welcome all that from the executive order. On the antitrust stuff, however, I will say that some of the rhetoric in the order d- disturbs me. Uh, repeated reference to unfair conduct, whatever that means, but I have a hunch it doesn't mean anything that I would consider, or it's much broader than anything I would consider to be anti-competitive conduct. And encouragement of FTC rulemaking, substantive rulemaking in the competition area. I think we'll probably talk about that later, and I- I'm not a big proponent of that at all. Doug, following up, you mentioned mergers. Uh, as you know, a few months ago, the FTC withdrew its acceptance of the 2020 vertical merger guidelines. 
And in January, just three months ago, the Justice Department and the FTC issued a request for information on issues that might inform new merger guidelines, including both horizontal and uh, vertical issues, potentially. Do you agree that new guidelines are needed, first of all? And if so, what major changes would you suggest? Well, I think you, new guidelines, I don't know if the needed is the right word. I'm not, I don't know that you need guidelines, but uh, I think it's probably appropriate to update the guidelines uh, uh, to make them a, t- a touch more aggressive in some of the places where that's warranted and, and to reflect some, some newer learning. Um, fruitful topics, it seems to me, certainly vertical mergers. I think it would be clear, it would be important to, to make clear how price effects unrelated to exclusion of rivals uh, can violate uh, uh, Section 7. That was the theory in ATT Time Warner, which interestingly, the court, as I read it, accepted, but then they rejected on the facts. Uh, certainly elaborating about how you would apply the antitrust laws to uh, uh, restraints in or mergers of, uh, adversely affecting labor markets, I think would be helpful. Where market definition might not be necessary in, uh, in, in order to resolve a merger case. Um, nascent competitors is a, is a tough one to solve, but one that deserves a lot of thought. And and the issue of presumptions and whether whether we should uh, you know where we should should go in that direction. I will say I think the request for information that the agencies put out is a little worrisome because I think it's very tendentious. At the outset, they say we're interested in information that will help us strengthen merger enforcement. I would have thought the appropriate question would be information that would help us improve merger enforcement. Um, they ask for information about false negatives. They don't ask for information about false positives. They suggested cost reductions uh, that result uh, as a result of, uh, of doing away with unneeded, you know, superfluous workers might not be a cognizable efficiency. I just find that obviously a departure from an economic welfare focus and into a distributional focus on, on whose ox is gored. And I'm a little concerned that the authors of the request for information didn't keep in mind that if the guidelines are going to be useful as guidance to the business community or as aids to the courts, the courts are going to have to accept them as consistent with, albeit obviously nudging and shaping on the basis of agency expertise, existing law, which includes cases decided since the 1960s. And it's not clear to me that what the the authors of the the, uh, request for information contemplate uh, new guidelines that will be so restrained. Josh. Well, there's a lot I agree with almost all of it. I, the the RFI is a propaganda document. Uh, it's not a a serious request for information to improve the methodological foundations of merger analysis. It's just not what it is. It's not what it's sold as. Um, and I think where Doug ended is where I, I will I will start, which is the reason that the merger guidelines have been successful in federal courts is because it's a pretty good document in terms of laying an economic foundation for analyzing whether mergers result in an increase in market power. That's what the guidelines are meant to do. They're meant to communicate the analytical framework the agencies use for internal decision-making and tell courts this is how, who, who are usually generalist federal judges who don't do a lot of antitrust cases, to tell them, hey, this, this is how you can think about these problems. 
And the reason the guidelines have been successful is because federal Article Three judges have picked up the guidelines and said, goodness, these are in fact helpful. I will use them. Uh, and to the extent that, you know, if the question is, is it a good or bad thing to revisit guidelines? Well, goodness, I would love for there to be a process where uh, we sat down and figured out how to write a better section on entry, whether we could do something better on unilateral effects, whether in the vertical space, it makes sense to write down as the the, the 2020 guidelines attempted to do, sort of a little bit more of a serious exercise of writing down how to think about foreclosure concerns and vertical mergers. All of those things are, are, are useful. Um, you know, thinking about double marginalization and transaction cost efficiencies and a way to communicate both how the agencies analyze those issues, but also how, how courts uh, can and should. That's not what this process is. You know, I don't think, um, I'm, I'm happy to bet Doug a beer that he doesn't think, and I don't think that the guidelines that come out of this process are going to do anything to improve the economic foundations of thinking about vertical mergers or anything helpful for judges. You're going to be full of presumptions that are divorced from economic evidence and theory. The document in which the agencies announced the repeal of the guidelines got successive monopoly and double marginalization wrong at the level that an undergraduate economics student would be able to point out the errors. It, it was it was bad and clearly never went through BE in any meaningful way. Um, if that same document said, well, there can't be as a matter of section seven law, as a legal matter, the statute doesn't say efficiencies. And so there can be no efficiencies defense in the case of a merger that improves, improves welfare because of marginal cost reduction. Section seven applies to horizontal mergers too. They obviously think it sort of both with respect to vertical and horizontal mergers. There, there's very soon to be three votes for that proposition inside the Federal Trade Commission. I find that depressing on the one hand, uh, because it's, clear, it's clearly wrong about the law and the economics, um, and, it's, and it's bad policy. On the other hand, um, the nature of this RFI and the process, if what we get is a set of guidelines that say, hey, there's a there's a nonsensical, not based on economics presumption for shares, and there's no efficiencies defense and, and all of that, we'll be sitting here in a couple of years saying, you know, the Biden FTC went and lost a ton of cases. Nobody adopted the guidelines. And in 2024, whoever whoever's there will we'll need a new set. And maybe then we'll have a serious discussion about all of the issues that Doug raised, which I, I think are the right issues for like a real updating of the guidelines, which you know, we did in 97 and 2010 and 20, I mean, I'd be happy for that conversation to, ha to happen, but I think that is um, a couple years away. Thanks for your crystal ball gazing, Josh. That's very interesting. Speaking of crystal balls and predictions, legislative proposals before Congress would, among other things, focus primarily on big data platforms and prohibit them, in effect, from doing a number of things, including a large number of enter into a large number of mergers, engage in self-preferencing, however that's defined, and perhaps require them to offer interconnectivity and other forms of, of cooperation to rivals. And obviously just touching the surface, but what, what's your take on any of the proposals? And uh, I'm not in the predictions market, but any thoughts as to whether they're going to go anywhere? 
I'm not in the prediction market either, but um, it's free. So I'll, I'll offer predictions anyway. And, you know, buy, buy, buyer beware, you get what you pay for. So I don't think any of the pieces of legislation are going anywhere. I think sort of pure politics for a second. I think the moment for that is passed. I think one of the reasons the moment for that is passed is you had a lot of bipartisan fervor about, you know, perhaps there could be some gains from trade on competition legislation between the Republicans and Democrats. Uh, because of the conservative anger over big tech. And I think there was a window and you've seen, you know, certain senators in the Republican caucus sort of stand up and um, goodness, I was, I was jealous of how well the Republican commissioners treated Lena. I don't, I don't think I got that when I, when I went through, I think that moment has passed. And I think the moment has passed in large part because now that the agencies have run under this administration for a while, uh, people are seeing what's happening. Lena, to her credit, has said, "Hey, I'm not. I'm not here for big tech. I'm. I'm here for all of you." Um, and that's how the agencies have proceeded. It has been, you know, a, a general worldview that all transactions probably violate Section Seven, or whether or not they do, they should be stopped. A preference for obliterating, eviscerating the HSR process that governs merger review at the agency, removal of you know, sort of particularly near and dear to my heart, the 2015 policy statement under the unfair methods of competition to pave the way uh, for rulemaking and to get rid of a constraint that said in the rulemaking context, we will, we will think only about economic welfare, uh, sort of doing away with that on their first day. It is not just the big tech industries that are suffering. It is uh, under uh, the leadership of the new antitrust agencies. It's everybody. And I think there's been enough time to pass so that the you know people in those other industries be it you know retail or private equity or manufacturing or whatever else are appealing to congress and saying these are bad ideas and they are going to hurt us please do not uh, give superpowers to the united states federal trade commission or the doj and i think that's a much more believable plausible story than it was 6 months ago or 12 months ago because there's evidence of some of those policies. The, the FTC uh, advocating for prior approval of all deals. Um, when there are acquisitive firms, I had to, I had to look up that, what that means. It turns out it doesn't mean firms that do a lot of acquisitions. Um, but what they mean is, and that you see in their policy statement about prior approval, is they contemplate prior approval, not just in consent, maybe a rule that says if you are a firm that has done a lot of acquisitions or thinks about acquisitions often. You have presumptive illegality and, and they, they would like you to, in exchange for your merger, give up judicial review rights on all future transactions. This stuff is, um, I think, really far out there and pretty obvious that it's not narrowly tailored or targeted to big tech. I think the more that that lesson has been understood by the antitrust bar as a whole, by the economy as a whole, the more that that political window has closed, I, you know, my view in five bucks gets you a cup of coffee, but my sense is that window's all the way closed. Uh, if I were betting on whether, you know, the, the AICOA, the, the self-preferencing bill, that also replaces the consumer welfare standard, but by, for what it's worth, with harm, essentially harm to rivals. My view is that if any of that, the, the probability of any of that goes through is next to zero, some of that becomes from, I think the smart money is always bet against Congress. So some of it's just general skepticism, but um, 
I also do think that the political moment for some of that has passed. And on the substance, I think nearly all of those proposals do a couple of things that I th think really don't have a place in a healthy antitrust enforcement system. One is they create different rules for different industries and different technologies. Two, they deviate or undermine the consumer welfare standard. Those are the two. I think those have negative sort of knock-on effects for what antitrust becomes, but that's my take on the legislation. Well, I, I note that at $5 a cup, uh, Josh drinks more expensive coffee than I do. I don't know. Um, let me just add a couple of thoughts. I, I, in some ways, I think the most interesting thing that Josh said was near the end of his comment when he, when he said that this litany of things about which he complained to the FTC were aimed not just at the tech platforms, but at any trust in general. I think it's a really important point. I actually interpret a lot of what, of what the commission did, uh, has done. I had a list of about eight or nine of them. I, don't, I, I won't bore you with trying to recall what they all were. Um, have the property and therefore give rise to the inference that they were intended to implement an enforcement strategy by an agency that thought it couldn't win in court and it wanted to deter transactions without ever subjecting itself to judicial review. Um, and that's obviously a very worrisome worrisome uh, development, I think, for those of us who believe in the rule of law. Um, against that background, one could imagine, well, gee, if we could actually change the law and make it a little bit more uh, maybe agreeable to some of the folks in the agencies, maybe we would at least get back to, to, to the rule of law. That would imply some general antitrust reform. Um, I suspect you could put, you know, Josh and me and three or four other people in a room and maybe have a, maybe not just coffee, maybe something stiffer to drink. And after a while, we could probably come up with, a, with legislation that might, might make some sense. But I don't believe Congress is going to do that. I don't think Congress is capable of doing that. So the, but the question, the interesting question that you raised initially, Alden, is what about sectoral specific uh, legislation? I can imagine an argument I wrote about it a couple of years ago. You should, you should have special, you might, arguably, could have special antitrust laws for the tech platforms on the ground that they seem to have inexorable growth potential with network effects, scale economies, and so forth. But that's not going to happen. The, the really interesting problem, with, to me, the, the central problem with the tech platforms is that the problems they raise are not exclusively antitrust. There are the economic problems of, of economic power and inequality, but there's also sociological problems of, of addiction and disintermediation and uh, privacy. And, and, and then there's the political problems of uh, disinformation and censorship and all that. And the remedies for some are inconsistent with the remedies for the other. If we, if, we wanted, if we want to open up entry barriers by going in the direction of interoperability and data portability, we create cybersecurity and privacy risks. So I can imagine an argument that what you need is a sectoral regulator charged with reconciling all these competing concerns. It's a huge task. Not going to happen. Instead, we have these um, populist um, primal screams uh, uh, on the hill about fair treatment of, of others using the platform. I don't even know what the problem is. I mean, or an antitruster would look at the platforms and, and think of issues like um, self-preferencing and, and non-discrimination. They would say, well, is that a way of aggrandizing existing monopolies? It doesn't appear to be that's, that that's what's on anybody's mind. Is, is, is it a way of extending market power into adjacent markets? Could be, but these bills don't aren't focused on that at all. They seem instead to articulate a kind of general notion of fairness uh, and it's not entirely clear to me what's unfair about taking advantage of scope economies. So um, I think 
until they have a better definition of what the problem is, I, I, I guess, and maybe for a slightly different reason, I come out where, where Josh does, I don't see how they're going to get a consensus to come up with a solution. Yeah, if I can just add one small thing there, Alden, before we, we go to the next one, just, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to triple down on this judicial review point, Doug, because I, you know, it is. I agree wholeheartedly. I think if you look at the um, sort of strategy and tactics of the agency as a whole, there are a couple of pieces that fit together: the removal of the policy statement and the intention to do competition rulemaking, uh, to you know, instead of litigation. The evisceration of HSR to put pressure on people in the review process to walk away from deals or let them expire or just make it generally burdensome in order to take deals off the table, sort of interora effects of procedural tactics inside the agency. Along with, with the rulemaking and the prior approval, I, I think there is very much a concerted effort to move away from the courts. I think a really interesting point with that, however, is that what's happening on the ground, and I'm talking now about the merger side more than the conduct side. On the merger side, it used to be the case that you had a merger in front of the agencies. You know, Think about like a, a retail deal or something. You go in on day one and you say, listen, we agree with you that in these 10 markets, there's a problem. And in these 50, we all agree they're fine. Let's focus our advocacy on the other 10 and we'll do we'll, we'll find a divestiture that solves the competition problems. Everybody's happy and we, we sort of walk away as sort of a, you know, you go and you do the analysis and you agree on the questions and staff recommends a solution and the commissioners accept it because everybody's reading from the same page and thinking about things the same way. Um, you can't be a practitioner in front of the agencies and do that anymore. You, you don't agree to a timing agreement with this agency. You come in and you say, you got 30 days, sue us or don't. Because whatever the staff does, they recommend a settlement, a divestiture package, whatever. The commission rejects it and says they're going to sue you. Well, the folks who are around the antitrust bar are, you know, are, are pretty smart. You know, they've been playing this game for, for, for longer. And I think people are learning that the optimal strategy is to hold the agency's feet to the fire and say, I don't know if you're going to sue us, sue us. You can't be the bully. Eventually, uh, the bully says, you got to fight me to take my lunch money. Uh, and, I, and I think you're seeing a little bit more of that. I think the interesting point that that raises is I think the FTC has opened up a lot of battlefronts and it's not clear they can cover them all. Right? The idea is avoid litigation and, and, and spend our time on rulemaking. But I think they simultaneously have adopted a strategy that almost guarantees that we're going to get a lot more litigation. I mean, you have to wait and get their third vote, uh, but I think they're going to end up in a lot, either end up in a lot of litigation that they don't want to be in with bad cases on the merger front, or they're going to have to learn, you know, the world is going to learn that their threats aren't credible. Um, I don't know which one of those is, is the equilibrium, but I think that the sort of next move uh, with that strategy, and I think we're starting to see it in the merger world already, is people saying to the FTC, um, when the, you know, the HSR clock goes, yes, I received your letter that says you can sue me anytime you want, sue me. I think we're going to get a lot more of that. Maybe that's good. Maybe it's bad. It's good for my casebook. There'll be more cases. But uh, I think that's going to be, I guess I'm full of predictions today, but I, I guess that's going to be what I think the next year looks like. 
Well, let me, let me see. I, I, I completely agree. It, it, it certainly has seemed to me since I saw some of these things roll out from the commission that, you know, if I were still in the business of practicing law, I'd be telling my clients, look, you want to bring a deal, get ready to litigate. It's, you know, it's, it's a different game. But here's my worry, Josh. It's not just that, okay, everybody's going to say, uh, yeah, you don't like it, sue me. And eventually, maybe the house of cards will crumble. What I worry about is that in the meantime, how many deals? I mean, so the lawyer, the lawyer goes to the CEO or the board and says, look, this deal looks like it should be lawful, but you're going to have to litigate it because it's not so obvious that they're not going to sue you. They'll have to litigate it. You have a 70% chance of winning, and it's going to take three or four years or two years, whatever it's going to be. How many deals does the board say, it's not worth it? I don't want to do that. That's the price, I think, they're one of the prices that you pay for, for this kind of approach to merger enforcement. Absolutely agree. And, and it's an area, I think, because of it. I, look, I think at the end of the day, you know, fast forward two years, it, when we look and see um, how many cases did this, admin, this FTC and DOJ bring in when, did, do they have any rules? Did we get any major legislation? Um, my, my guess is the answer will be no more wins than the Trump administration or the Obama administration, probably fewer, uh, fewer as a percentage. I don't think that there'll be any competition rules on the book because I don't think the FTC has the authority to promulgate them. Uh, and I suspect that uh, the courts will agree. And I think when people look at the scoreboard, that will suggest no harm, no foul with, with uh, this administration's uh, antitrust enforcement choices. But that misses the the story that you just told, which is, I think these interim effects, sort of general deterrence of competitive conduct and mergers and transactions, I, I think that's the, the real story and the real loss that arises out of this, this strategy. Very quickly, uh, Josh, you preempted my question on uh, FTC rulemaking, competition rulemaking under Section 60 of the FTC Act, which refers very generally to the authority to issue rules in part of a larger section dealing with largely procedural matters. There are a number of people who have argued, myself included, that that the FTC would lose before the courts, that it probably doesn't have that authority, but it clearly is going to try. It said so in a December 2021 uh, regulatory agenda release. Uh, Doug, what are your thoughts on, on the future of this FTC competition rulemaking? Well, I, I, I don't profess to be a real expert in the law in this area. I'm sure Josh has studied that more closely than I. But from what I do know, I, I think it's, it's, it's unlikely that a court will find that they have the authority to make, do substantive rulemaking on, under the competition prong of Section 5. Um, but I want to just add one other, uh, just add a little something on the desirability of rules. I, I, I'm, uh, I could imagine... Uh, a conclusion, uh, this, this goes to legislation as well, that says, look, the courts in, the, in, in these, what I called micro r- rules earlier, have gone too far. Uh, we we, we want to recalibrate them ordinarily because it's, uh, these are judge-made rules. You'd expect the courts in the common law kind of process to do their own recalibration. These courts are very conservative. The Supreme Court is extremely conservative on antitrust. So it'll be a long, long time before the common law corrects these, what we, some people like me, might regard as as errors so let's try to let's try to pass rules legislation or ftc rules and i'm not talking now about codifying decision rules i'm talking about clarifying principles uh in in a way that that uh, you would hope wouldn't become obsolete you know with changes in market circumstances um so i could imagine a theoretical case 
for some kind of, of rulemaking it's, it, it, by some organization. But I wouldn't want it to be the FTC. And that's because of the specific FTC concerns I have. I think it's hard to imagine consensus on the commission. I don't know how long the rules would last at the commission. Um, I don't think you should have different antitrust rules for the FTC uh, than the ones you have for DOJ um, because of inner industry uh, inconsistencies that that would imply. And and also, this is something near and dear to my heart. FTC rules would be under Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act. They would be enforced in the administrative proceedings uh, rather than in federal courts. And for reasons that I've written about, Josh has written about, he and I have uh, lamented about uh, for a long time, I think administrative adjudication of, of antitrust principles is a really bad bad thing, uh, not because of the ALJs, but because basically you have the you have the prosecutor sitting as the judge when the FTC makes a final decision. And I think it's not, not just that it's unfair to defendants who always lose in contested cases involving Sherman Act issues have lost everyone since 1984 at the commission level. But I think it leads to an, an impoverishment of the adjudication process when it does get to the Court of Appeals because you have the commission defending and locked in under the under administrative law rules to its opinion, which is often a butchered compromise job, rather than being advocates in a court defending a result by a lower court. So I would think FTC rulemaking is probably not legally authorized, uh, is probably undesirable in, in general, because, because rulemaking may not be the right way to solve antitrust problems, but it's certainly undesirable if it's confined to the FTC in Section 5. That sort of raised an even bigger question for both of you. Senator Lee has argued that there should be only one federal antitrust agency, the Justice Department, for the sake of policy coherence and efficiency. What are your views, Josh? I'm happy to start. I think so. A, a couple of things. I'm sympathetic to the idea that the cost of multiple agencies uh, exceeds the benefits, and so we we ought sort of reconsider the institutional structure and whether we do one, whether you know, put it in the DOJ or or what have you. I'm sympathetic to that argument. I'm sympathetic to that argument in large part because the agencies over time have proven for one reason or another that they just can't be happy operating under the same rules. Um, you know, the FTC has chosen to interpret its Section 5 UMC authority to give it different rules, or at least to argue to the world, it has different rules, say in areas to do with an IP and antitrust is one example, but there are others. I think the FTC insisting that it could use administrative adjudication if it loses a merger case in federal court, which is something it's done from time to time. I think, you know, on the other direction, you've got uh, not too long ago, the DOJ intervening in FTC cases and amicus briefs, and even in places where I, I, I sort of agree in most of the substance of the DOJ's brief. It's just an unhealthy situation where you've got different rules different agencies and you've got an industry, you know, sort of coin flip to see which one which one governs. Right now, I think you're also going to see some process-based difference in, uh, differences in merger review as well uh, between the agencies. You know, I'm an FTC guy. I've worked at the FTC four times. So, you know, from, from, from being an intern to a commissioner, I, it's, it's very difficult for me to feel sympathy for the argument that we ought to take the competition mission away from the FTC uh, and, and sort of hold it all in, in one agency. 
but goodness if they're not making the case for it. Uh, I, I think the the behavior of the agency with abuses of administrative adjudication in particular, but sort of now expanding into, you know, uh, the interim sort of uh, effects we we're talking about in merger review, some of the differences between the agencies. I, I, I think I, I am sympathetic. I, I am not a, I don't know if I'm in a place yet where I can give sort of full, full-throated support uh, to the idea, but the continued divergence and policy differences and, and enforcement differences between the agencies that have been persistent over time and across administrations, I, I think is really inexcusable. Um, and I think it makes the case for structural change. What I would like to see first before any of that is I would, uh, you know, if I could major, wave a magic wand, I'd get rid of administrative adjudication at the FTC tomorrow. Um, I would, at a minimum, reinstore the 2015 policy statement, if not go a little bit further, um, both as a constraint on the Section 5 authority generally, as a you know, because I think that would be desirable policy, but it also minimizes uh, it's a really attractive tool to an agency that wants to make uh, its own rules and standards and doesn't want to think hard about whether that curates divergence with its sister agency. Uh, so at a minimum, I would get rid of administrative adjudication. I would impose constraints on UMC interpretation, and I'd probably do away with the FTC ability to do competition rules for all the reasons that Doug said. Well, I, I, I think it makes no sense to have two different agencies. If you were starting from scratch, it's hard to imagine that's what you'd come up with. Um, I think we ought to have one agency for consistency and efficiency, because I think it's a better model when we're out proselytizing and, you know, with a good sound antitrust policies to foreign countries. Um, I think that agency should be the Justice Department. Um, I've heard it argued that the having the consumer protection uh, mandate uh, enriches competition analysis at the FTC. I haven't been inside the FTC enough to know. I'm skeptical that that's really important, uh, or, or at least, um, shall we say, institution-specific um, uh, benefit. Uh, and certainly absent of that, the DOJ is, is a better agency. First of all, it has a criminal authority. Secondly, it's a law enforcement agency with a law enforcement culture, which I think is a more, is a healthier one for sound antitrust enforcement, which is about competition, not regulation. And it's a single-headed agency, so I think it's more likely to have uh, to act in a coherent uh, and consistent, internally coherent way. The theory is that the cases it bring, brings are going to be coherent and intelligible, more so, I think, than in a multi-headed organization. The synergies of consumer protection and competition missions inside the agency are uh... The story of synergies uh, between those are um, the stories I, I wish were true. I, I, I really do. I think one can imagine making that case in theory. I, you wouldn't have to search far in my own writing uh, to find me making that case previously, but nothing disabuses one of the, that notion more than working inside the agency. Good, interesting point. Let's turn quickly to monopolization. Now, given current case law, what do you think is a prospect for such big cases as FTC v. Facebook, which until a few months ago was sort of on life support until the second crack at the motion to dismiss by Facebook failed, and of course, DOJ v. Google. And that leads leads to the separate question about potential (laughs) amendment to Sherman Act Sections 2 language to overturn such 
precedences, Trinkle, perhaps Linkline. I, I don't think that's going to happen. But in general, just your I'd like the two of you, the thought of two of you on, on monopolization. And as a footnote, I might mention that there's an ongoing effort in New York State to amend the New York State competition law to adopt an abusive dominance standard, European standard, as opposed to the Sherman Act Section 2 standard? Well, let me just try a brief response to this. I'm not going to prognosticate the outcomes of cases. I probably feel only slightly more confident doing that than than outcome of legislation. I think the FTC's case is a really interesting case, but I think they're going to have enormous difficulty, even if they get past all the analytical problems, of uh, explaining to any judge, and certainly the judge who's sitting in that court, uh, why did you wait so long on the mergers? Uh, I think the uh, the uh, Google case, as I understand, is a very complicated case to litigate, but I don't think it's making particularly uh, pathbreaking in, the, in, in terms of new law or anything like that. The state cases, more so than the federal cases, but not so much there, I think. Um, I think, look, I think the area of monopolization law is an area that I certainly had in mind when I said earlier that we need um, we need some recalibration. Uh, the law, I wish the law would be nudged here and there. Uh, I think that, I don't think you need to change the statutory language. Frankly, I think if courts were willing to listen uh, and look at Trinco and say, let's imagine that Trinco, I think Trinco was rightly decided. The problem is it was written by Scalia and not Breyer. And there was a lot of broad language there, which the lower courts were in many cases have run with and taken that whole idea, in my view, way, way too far uh, on, on what duties a firm might have when it's dealing with, you know, with, with an outsider using the platform and so forth or wants to use the platform. So I think we could get we mean the law, the legal system could get from where we are now to where I think they ought to be with cases in principle, like the cases that are pending. Um, the judiciary is very conservative. We talked about that. I don't know that either of these cases is likely uh, to nudge the law. I think that's unlikely, either because they'll, they'll lose or because they'll win on conventional legal theories. Josh, your thoughts? You know, I, I, I'm not much in the business of prognosticating the, the outcomes in those cases as well, but I, I certainly agree with the proposition that neither case is one that's going to move Section 2 generally. I And I do agree, I think, in the Facebook case in particular, with because we've got sort of more of a, a track record to look at what, what's, going, what's going on there. I, I think they've got some real problems. I think they've got some summary judgment type problems um, and the judges highlighted them all, all already. But I also think when push comes to shove in a case, this is sort of agreeing, I think with, with where Doug was going, when you wait 10 years to bring a case and you've got a consummated deal, the burden of proof facing the agency on the books isn't different, but goodness, if the judge, you know, isn't looking for real evidence that compared to the counterfactual, this deal's anti-competitive. And I think if you're going to wait a decade to bring a case, you better have the goods. And there are styles of consummated deals and killer acquisitions where the theory is, well, look, they acquired the thing and they buried the product. And so so as long as in the but-for world, the product is out there and doing something and making some consumers happy, you know, maybe you've got a case. But this isn't this isn't that case. I, my children tell me that WhatsApp and Instagram are still things um, that, that people use. Uh, so th- this isn't one where the theory is that they bought it and, you know, and, and, and buried it. They'll have documents to show and the like, and, you know, they waved them around in the congressional hearings. But short of that, I'm not, 
I, I worry about the agency meeting its burden in, 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 in that case. What I was saying about, about Section 2, and we, we were talking about Trinco and reform efforts through legislation or, or elsewhere, be it uh, the United States Congress or New York statute, which I actually think is, a, is quite a bit worse than Europe's monopolization standard, and I think that's hard to do. I think in the U.S., you know, Doug's got a handful of cases, be they Qualcomm or Amex or other section, you know, section two type theories, where uh, I think the question is, you know, how, how's the law operating in those those areas? I used uh, McWayne as an example that I think cuts the other way, where uh, the FTC came to court and said, uh, it is not our burden to show that this exclusive dealing contract raise the market price or reduce market output or harm consumers. All we need to do is show that the defendant has a high share. And, you know, because it has a high share, you know, obviously you get a foreclosure rate that's that's relatively high as well. One of my my favorites uh, for a discussion like this is McWayne. Now I'm the dissenting commissioner, so I, I wake up thinking about the the one that got away. Uh, you know, couldn't even persuade one colleague to vote with me. So I'm, I'm by myself in, in dissent. But if you look at the record, the FTC proudly argues we have not a lick of evidence. This was a monopolization case involving exclusive dealing, so sort of past conduct. Not a lick of evidence offered about what happened to price or output. Do you have anything to add about monopolization cases, Doug? Or well, I just want to add one small point, uh, just to make sure that there's maybe the record as it were is not incomplete. Josh said, and I don't disagree with this, that the uh, the Facebook acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram were not killer acquisitions in the sense that he didn't buy the nascent competitor and put it out of business. But I would hate to have a rule that would say, if you don't put it out of business, you're, in, you're home free. Because I think the real question in a case like the like Instagram is whether Instagram could have been a, a real game changer. Uh, to the whole uh, social networking paradigm and, and shaking things up and diminish Facebook's role and so forth if it had been in independent hands rather than is operated as a complement to Facebook. Uh, and I, and while I think the facts are going to be very tough to prove in, in the pending case, that, it seems to me, is the, is, the, is the interesting issue in nascent competition cases, much more than the so-called killer acquisition story. Well, certainly on the IPN, I trust, and I know you have argued that the FCC lost its monopolization case against Qualcomm, which basically involved claims that Qualcomm had violated Sherman Act to its restrictive patent licensing policies, primarily on standard essential patents, patents that read on standards, and that it, it had a sort of a no license, no chips policy. And it, it won, the FTC won in district court. In fact, the district court judge, uh, as a remedy, wanted Qualcomm to renegotiate its contracts. But then it won before the court, uh, but then the Court of Appeals reversed and uh, Qualcomm came out the victor. And in related to that, more recently, the Biden administration appears to be reversing Trump policies regarding so, licensing of, again, standard essential patents, patents that cover standards. Now, the under the last administration, it was argued that holders of these standard essential patents should be treated the same as holders of other patents. The Biden administration seems to be taking a tougher line and is contemplating a new policy statement on its views on licensing of standard essential patents. 
your thoughts, Doug, on, on that set, more broadly, the set of IP antitrust issues. Yeah, I mean, this is an area uh, where I, I'm pretty sure that Josh and I really don't agree much. Um, uh, let me. The Qualcomm case is a really interesting case. It's a one-off. I'm glad to talk about it, but let me let me leave that aside because it would take a while to unravel the problems here, which I actually think have almost nothing to do with Fran commitments and, and some of the core issues involving SEPs that I think you you have in mind. Um, I, I, on, on the general policy issues, I'm completely supportive of the Biden administration. I mean, uh, what the Trump administration did in the Justice Department, FTC wasn't with them, I think was eccentric. It was a departure from, from prior uh, uh, almost consensus understandings. I actually think the whole issue of public policy in this area is it, just a wonderful case study of public choice. I think what you have is a, a few companies whose re- huge revenues depend largely on licensing and patents. And they've not surprisingly been more committed to and more effective at lobbying than have the technology implementers, those who make devices and machines using the patented technologies, and for, who care a lot about the patent royalties they pay, but don't look at the royalties as the core of their business. So you have, I think, a, a very skewed debate that, that loses sight of some important uh, important starting points. And I'm just, I'm just going to mention them and then maybe I'll stop. First of all, patents do not confer rights broader than those of owners of tangible property. They were never intended to, and they don't. I mean, they're limited in, in duration. I own my house. I don't have it's not like an X-year term. I own the house. So there should be no special privilege from the antitrust laws for intellectual property law. That's point one. Point two, most of the biggest disputes in, in the areas to which you referred all of them involve the IT sector, the information technology where for good welfare-enhancing reasons, licensing takes place after firms have begun implementing the technologies. I just want to pause over this. My cell phone has technologies that are claimed by an estimated several hundred thousand patents. It's inconceivable that any phone manufacturer could get preclearance of all the patent issues before rolling out a phone if we wanted to see a phone in my lifetime. So we, we should welcome this implement first and then worry about the patent issues later. But but the significance of that is that these patent issues therefore are resolved when you have a dispute between a patent owner who claims he's owed money by an implementer who already has an accrued potential liability. And the idea that we can look to some kind of market bargain and, and, and licensing practices in different contexts as, as useful information is, is very misleading because what's really going on, no matter how, what, you, what you call it, is settlement of a threatened or actual litigation. It's not a market transaction in the ordinary sense in which, in which the parties can walk away if they don't reach a deal. Neither party can walk away. The patent holder doesn't get a license. The other guy is using his technology, he claims. And if the, if, if the implementer doesn't get a license, isn't happy with the license terms, he winds up in court. So all we're talking about here is the terms on which litigation can be settled. And the law has to take that reality into account. And when it does, I think a lot of the rhetoric about markets and highfalutin theories, uh, property rights and all that drive a lot of the uh, 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 what I call this public choice success on the other side of these issues, I think kind of evaporates and we, we wind up pretty close to where the Biden administration is. Josh, your thoughts? And I think right now, the instinct to point to what one perceives as errors in the courts 
our, you know, feed policy efforts to do bad rulemaking or bad legislation or sort of bad policies that we, we've sort of talked about about otherwise. I don't doubt that Doug and I could get in a room and think about general principles that we'd like to see articulated in some guidelines or sort of as a, as a high level to guide Section 2 enforcement. We, we, we disagree on the outcome of, of Qualcomm as a particular case, but I, I'm listening to Doug uh, give his general principles for how he thinks about IP and antitrust and the symmetry between you know, how we should p- treat IP and real property. These, these are all things that I think are are good ideas that I do I do disagree I do agree with, but yet disagree about the outcome in the particular case, given the evidence put in front of the court. I think we could do that, but I think the policy debate in the country right now and what's happening at the agency isn't isn't that. I think the actual proposals on the ground for the cases these the agencies right now want to bring, uh, and the pieces of legislation in front of Congress right now, aren't to tinker with Trinco or make some general statements about economic evidence. The House report proposes overturning every single Supreme Court antitrust case since 1977. In a footnote, they propose overturning Frank Easterbrook's 1984 law, law review article. I don't know how one does that. And, you know, I'm mostly jealous no one's overturned one of my articles yet. They overturned my policy statement, but not an article. So uh, that's, that's okay. Look, that's where the debate is right now. I don't think we're going to get those sorts of principles. I think you could get improvement in Section 2 doctrine. I would like to see more focus on actual proof in Section 2 cases. I would be happy to trade more focus on actual economic proof on both sides of the V in exchange for sort of less broad sweeping safe harbors. I'd, I'd, I'd be happy uh, to do that and as long as we did it symmetrically. But that's not the policy discussion that's happening at the agencies. You know, what's happening is can we declare bright line rules of per se illegality for broad swaths of conduct that we agree are sometimes anti-competitive and sometimes pro-competitive? Where I'm left in the absence of real evidence that there's a market power crisis in the economy or real evidence that to me, and this is a place where I think Doug and I do differ, I don't think there's a real crisis for antitrust plaintiffs in the courts. I think they win good cases. I think sometimes they win cases they shouldn't. So in the absence of either of those, I think, you know, and looking at the actual policy alternatives being proposed in places like New York and out of the agency and in the executive order, Doug's ideas for how to fix section two just aren't popular enough. Uh, right, right now. Nor, nor, but, but they're more popular than mine, Doug. So that's not a shot at you. That's why I don't do politics, Josh. I'm in a different world. I try to be. This has been a fascinating conversation. I wish we could continue, but I think we'll have to wrap up now. I, I maybe. Do you want the last word, uh, Doug? Do you have anything to add to uh, Josh's broad comments about the sort of bigger picture? Well, let, let me try this. It's, it's a question. I think one of the problems in antitrust is that it's very it's become very complicated, very technocratic. And I think a lot of judges don't understand it. It doesn't explain every case it was right, you decided or wrong, you decided, but I think it's I think it's a problem. And that's because after all, antitrust is, is decentrally enforced by 51 government agencies and every injured party and in hundreds of district courts around the country. So I think I wonder whether we ought to be thinking, you know, in the ivory tower sense, not because it's popular, we can get it done in Congress, 
about simplifying any trust or or expert tribunal. Another issue, another conversation. Put that aside. Um, so here's my here's my my question. What if we took all of antitrust law and we changed it to the following? A defendant violates the antitrust laws if it, one, engages in conduct that increases its market power compared to the but-for world, and that conduct cannot be justified by efficiency benefits in the nature of improved product quality, lower prices, or, or, or um, lower costs sufficient to overcome the market power costs. Get rid of Trinco and Brook Group and Sylvania and all of it. And just put those questions before the court and then have the parties decide what facts and what economic analysis is needed to address those two questions in the case before it. Would that make it easier for judges to reach the right decision? Well, that's certainly a provocative question, Doug, broader philosophical question. And I don't have an answer to it, but I don't know if you have an answer to it, Josh. But... Well, I like how we. You know, you frame that as your, you know, little last closing comment to think about, and then turn the antitrust world upside down. But uh, there, there's a lot to like there. Frankly, I think for broad swaths of antitrust, you described what the law is. Uh, you know, sort of, but for these areas where we've developed safe harbors uh, or presumptions of illegality in another in another way, right? So this is, um, do you do economic intensive case by case analysis? on those questions, which I think are inherently economic questions in every case, or do you try to carve out sensible bright line rules, whether presumptions of illegality or legality on, on sort of both sides? So I, I think that question sort of return us to where we started with the Neo-Brandeisian pool uh, on, on antitrust is uh, the the sort of far antitrust left is now the owner of the uh, the desire for bright line rules and antitrust, you know, bright line presumptions of per se illegality for, for sort of everything. Whereas, you know, go back to 1984 and that was that was Frank Easterbrook's domain. It was, you know, simple rules for, for antitrust and, and, and safe harbors. What I think that approach misses, and I, and I do like it for most of antitrust, is there are areas where I think we know enough about the conduct. Take per se rules for naked price fixing. Take, you know, you know, to do one that's more provocative, I, I think the literature on vertical mergers is overwhelming that vertical mergers are generally pro-competitive or competitively uh, neutral. There are exceptional cases where vertical mergers harm competition, for sure. But there are areas where we know a lot about the distribution of the competitive effects of a practice, where, you know, it's 95% likely that conditional on seeing this type of business arrangement, it either hurts or harms consumer welfare. It either increases market power in a way that fits your definition or it does not. And I think the question for antitrust is in the area where we have that sort of information available to us, do we want to use it to shape rules or not? It's a transaction cost question in, in a way about the efficiency of rules versus standards. Uh, to me, uh, I think the answer to that question is, yes, we do want that from our antitrust system. We want it on places where uh, we can use it to make enforcement more efficient, a la per se rules. We want it on the safe harbor side too, uh, because for conduct where the answer to the, your question is obviously no, the conduct is not likely to result in the effects the antitrust laws ought to be concerned with. I think a, a good, an optimal antitrust regime has rules that get to that answer faster and with 
a greater percentage of the time than a case by case. This is rules versus standards 101. But I, I, and I think the answer to the question, should an antitrust regime sort of respond to the economics of the rules versus standards debate? Absolutely. Are we doing that well? Sometimes, sometimes not. One, if I can, one, one very brief thought, a lot of wisdom in, in, in what Josh said, but the, the, the problem, I think, and I don't, I'm not convinced that my idea is more than half-baked at all, but the problem is that when Josh articulates the benefits of rules and presumptions and, you know, and in fact, codifying learning, he assumes that we know the category that the conduct at issue falls into. And what I think happens a lot is we have we have a rule, a unilateral refusal to deal, predatory pricing. And then we spend a great deal of time arguing, well, wait a minute, is this predatory pricing? Is it tie? Is it exclusive dealing? Is it a refusal to deal, a conditional refusal to deal? And that's where the complexity comes in. But for another month or so to, to talk through. To be continued, really provocative thoughts by two great scholars of law and economics. I hope that everyone here has learned something and look forward to future conversations and future podcasts on antitrust. Thank you. The Mercatus Policy Download is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Explore our research on pressing policy problems at mercatus.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.